This is part three and the final part of Taekwondo and Korean History Explains Everything. This was recorded on February 7th, and you'll find much of our analysis, especially the economics, validated by the happenings of today. This is Sam. This is Jay. And this is Southpaw. Let's continue. As much controversy as these incidents created, Taekwondo, like the South Korean economy, seemed to grow with no one in sight. In 1981, a new military dictator, Chun Doo-wan, sent case agents Kim Eun-yong and Pistol Park Kyung-chu on a secret mission to secure South Korea to see to host the 1988 Olympics. Operation Thunderbird, as it was called, included several Taekwondo instructors and an absurd amount of bribery, but it worked. That September, the IOC selected Seoul as the host for the 1988 Summer Olympics, beating out the frontrunner Nagoya in Japan. To add icing on the cake, Taekwondo would be for the first time introduced to the Olympics as a demonstration sport. 35 nations would compete in what was an obscure martial art only 30 years ago. As one article in the Korean Journal put it, Taekwondo had achieved what Korea's most skilled diplomats have been unable to accomplish. That is to bring the citizens of advanced Western countries to an attitude of respect before the Korean flag. This is particularly interesting now as the U.S. is more upset about Olympics in China than when they participated in the Nazi Olympics or how chill they were with Seoul being the site for the Olympics when it was under a brutal dictatorship. But the key seems to be, so long as this U.S.-backed is chill. So we like Korea at the time, even though it's a brutal dictatorship with concentration camps. But they're our friends, so that's fine. It's like insane hypocrisy. Like, I always wonder how people could have believed in McCarthyism, you know? And I see it now, and I'm just like, man, like, literally nothing has changed. Well, I mean, I had nothing, but very little has changed. Like, I mean, even the whole boycott Olympics, that's not new in America. The, the boycott Olympics a couple decades ago under Jimmy Carter because of the, the Soviet war in Afghanistan, which is just kind of like, okay. It's like, okay, so Korea is fine, you know, even though it was just like one year. Well, I mean, I mean, it was one year after the dictatorship ended, but you accepted it before the dictatorship ended. Yeah, yeah, like a decade before, right? Yeah, and specifically, the dictator involved, right? I mean, Chun Doo-wan, like, you know, like his nickname in Korea is the Butcher of Gwangju. Yeah. Like, he's arguably more hated than Park Jung-hee, which says a lot. He's special, right? Because, like, I guess probably as far as massacres go, maybe, like, Sigmund Rhee, like, was involved with more of those massacres. Park Jung-hee did, like, a lot of these, like, policies and killings. But maybe not as many massacres as uh, Sigmund Rhee. But then the butcher brought back the massacres, brought back the concentration camps. Or actually, like Park Chung-hee really brought it back. But like Chun Doo-hwan really like took it up a notch. Yeah, the, uh, they're called purification camps, right? Was so, which is just a fucking freaky name. And they also going back to the churches. They were tied to the Protestant churches in Korea. Yeah, right. It was like we're gonna we're gonna Christianize these filthy like dissidents. By putting them in concentration camps, like killing them, torturing them, making them sexual slaves. Like it was like Squid Game because there was even like they made them do these weird games and stuff, you know, fucking with their lives. Oh, yeah, it was, it was horribly sadistic. Like, but while that was happening, Olympics there, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's no. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's insane, right? It's I don't I don't even know really what more to say about it. 
just because I, to be honest, I am still just kind of baffled. I really am. <laughs> I don't have a lot of words. Because you're in Korea right now, right? Yeah. So you're Korean in Korea, looking at America right now, and you're just baffled. I, I, I try to say this to friends, and it, I don't think it always registers. If I had to be honest, but like most of the world looks at look at looks at America like it's it's a crazy person. They look at just horror, shock, and confusion. The U.S. thought once Biden left, y'all wouldn't think like that anymore. That's true. No, I don't know. Like, there's a reason I moved to Korea. One of them was when the organization I worked with like canvassed for Biden and called him the most progressive presidential candidate. <laughs> and I just like, okay, I'm leaving. This, this, I need to, I need to take a step back and and wait for people. To... This has gone off the rails. No, without a doubt. But you know, um. Actually, about this 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 section of the article, this is I think this is where I think it taps into I think really the meat of what I want to say about the Korean government during this period, and like really like what like how Taekwondo shows that South Korea I don't think can be analyzed like a lot of other countries under under um neocolonial regimes for lack of a better word. I mean, I would say like South Korea was not like. Um, pre-Chavez Venezuela or like Cong- or the Congo it's like there was not this you know like, you know, like, like, like in those countries you can like talk about like compradors and like the, the stealing of resources in, in Korea it was very different like I mean one thing you kind of learn about reading about the history of Taekwondo was KCT- KCIA was shockingly independent I don't think I included it in the article but they were actually bribing US politicians like congressional representatives like they like this was like a very like independent apparatus, you know. But at the same time, like it was very integral to expanding U.S. hegemony, and I think it, it shows the sort of the complicated role South Korea plays, but also just kind of like the relationship between you know imperialism, whether it's the U.S. or like in back in the olden days Britain or Portugal, and global capitalism. Because like I mean like one of the things was the fact that you know just kind of like the KC or Taekwondo, like most of like. Like what we think, we take pride in South Korea. Like, was independently, not indep- independently is not the right word to use it, but it was allowed to be built up in a way that actually like threatened domestic U.S. interests. Right? It's like we talk about Korean tables, right? And like that was like not popular decision among factions of the U.S. capital, right? Like if you were a U.S. auto company, you didn't like that. I think Taekwondo was a part of that, not just because the tables like were actually also huge funders. For for um, Taekwondo, as something I didn't mention, like the cookie one was like heavily um, invested with like um, donations from from Samsung, which might have, which probably involved a large degree of corruption and laundering. Nobody knows to like which extent, but it kind of sh- I think digs deeper. Like I I put it at the end of the, end of the paragraph, right? Like it they achieved what was never achieved before that is bringing citizens to the advanced western countries to an attitude of perspective for the korean flag was i i think something i wanted to emphasize was that like what pak chung hee and really taekwondo's founders wanted to achieve as well was create an identity that koreans can feel proud of and to them that identity was one that was strong that was militarist and, and projected an image globally that we were not to be messed around with anymore. And they thought the best way to do that was by aiding in U.S. hegemony, but they wanted to do it on their own terms, which is this weird contradiction. Oh, I don't think it's like a weird contradiction because capitalist imperialism is complicated. Like to give an example of something that's happening now, a lot of people are like, 
trying to understand what's happening with Joe Rogan. And they're talking about like, oh, you're trying to cancel him, deplatform him, you know, and there's even some like leftists saying like, we shouldn't cancel or deplatform him. It's like, I think the terms canceling and deplatforming confuses people to the actual monetary deal that he has with Spotify. So the deal that he has is an exclusive deal. So what that deal actually did was it actually deplatformed him from every other place. So he was basically kind of like public domain. He was a public RSS feed that he was allowing any platform to feed into. So if you were using some random like podcast app that somebody created, something like Podcast Addict, you could listen to him there. You could listen to him also on Spotify, on YouTube, on Apple Music, on Stitcher. And then the Spotify deal actually made all of them remove him. So now you can't listen to him on any of those things anymore. So then he got deplatformed everywhere else and he's only with Spotify. So when people are saying you're canceling him or you're deplatforming him because you want that deal to end, they're not actually deplatforming him. You're replatforming him because once that deal ends, then he becomes a public RSS feed again. And so he goes back onto YouTube and everywhere else, but also Spotify because his exclusive deal ends, but Spotify as an API can still tap into his feed. So you can still listen to him on Spotify. It's just that he's just another public feed one of many. And so they no longer have to answer for what he does because they're not the ones who are hosting him anymore, meaning hosting the data. He's hosting it himself and they're just what is called catching the data. They're catching his RSS feed. Why I'm bringing that up, even though it sounds unrelated, is because capitalism is complicated. It's so complicated, people don't know how to have a right take about this because they don't actually know how this money deal works. So what I'm saying is with imperialism and imperial capitalism, like in the case of Korea, it gets complicated. So this whole thing of like contradiction of like, well, they didn't have full power. You don't need direct authority. A lot of the way capitalism works is like indirect and uh, controlled through debt and through a lot of financial means rather than just always boots on the ground, though they do have military in Korea. So I think what you're talking about speaks to how complicated imperial capitalism is to understand. So it often feels contradictory. And even like the people running it, running the US don't completely understand it either. It's kind of like a runaway train. They just mostly benefit from it. And so they just kind of like want to maintain that status quo because they don't 100% know how it works. It's kind of like magic, but they know it's important to keep it working for their own benefit. I come from a financial background as well as martial arts, which I think are also very related about like these very real consequences, right? Financial domination, physical domination. But why I say that is because a lot of people do not understand all the countries in the world cannot run without oil. You cannot buy oil without the US dollar. It's not just the Federal Reserve currency, but it's the only currency you could buy oil in. Not only that, the US controls the SWIFT system. So how any country can send money to each other is controlled by the US. It's like an independent system, but the US is the main controller of the system. So one of the things that they're threatening Russia with is they're going to turn off SWIFT, which would like decimate the country, right? So even with their enemies, there's like reasons why they don't completely shut them off because they're still as middlemen making money off of even the country they don't like. An example of a country they completely shut off would be North Korea. And you can see what that did there, right? But do you know in North Korea, they don't have their own currency. They still have to use the dollar because their currency can't be stable because it can't be part of any global monetary system. It can't be banked. Like, I'm not talking about bank, like the local bank you walk into, though that's still connected to like the bigger bank, the banking international system. You can't have a currency if you can't transact your currency in that global banking system. So when I say the US and capitalism is interchangeable, you know how like capitalism runs on money. 
but specifically it runs on the US dollar. That's why I could say with confidence that capitalism and the US are interchangeable because the US not only invents or creates the currency that capitalism runs under, it could print an unlimited amount of it. So that's why you could mint a coin and pay off their own debt because they're the only country that could do that because all debt is denominated in US dollar. There's like a wild tangent, but I guess it's all to kind of explain the control the US has, which is why like they can really loosen their leashes on countries and even like make them feel like they have autonomy, even though they never really do. And then if like a dictator gets out of hand, they've done this a lot of times, they'll kill them, right? How I want to differentiate what I was saying is like global capitalism versus like capitalism or like big uppercase capitalism or lowercase. You can have capitalism in a micro sense, in a local sense, right? And that may not always involve the US or you don't know how it involves the US, right? You're just doing these transactions. But if you zoom all the way out in global capitalism, it is still very much controlled by the US. Like you could be telling a Wall Street style story about Korea, but if that story, like if you're a writer and the scope of your story gets too big, there will be some point where you have to write in some kind of US intervention because the story got too big, right? Whereas the US will never have to write a story where like there will be a Korean intervention. I think that it is, for me, it is uh, imperative, it's necessary um, to start from the global scale in trying to understand domestic politics or domestic macro macrofinancial developments, simply because the countries we come from and the countries we study, I'm, I'm Romanian, Dongo is from Senegal, um, the countries in the global south, um, they have been uh, in, involved or they have been part of the global economic system or the global financial system in different ways historically, but we cannot understand domestic developments without understanding what, what is happening globally and without understanding patterns of integration into either international trade or, uh, or, or financial globalization. So, so to me, even if you study the U.S., you have to study the U.S. as, as the global hegemon in terms of providing the international reserve currency, in terms of providing or, or supporting or, or driving certain patterns of colonialism and post-colonialism. So nothing can be understood, as far as I'm concerned, at, at, at national scale. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I share that same premise because, well, when you come from, let's say, the kind of background, let's say, economics background, for example, de dependency theory, world system theory, uh, you know that you cannot understand uh, the specificity of underdevelopment, for example, in, in the global south, if you do not put that, let's say, uh, in the context of the global deployment of the capitalist logic. So that means necessarily you have to have a, a global approach. And that has been um, the kind of uh, methodology followed by, let's say, most thinkers from the global north, from the global south, interested in the issue of development, underdevelopment, etc., and the thing is also with what has been called the globalization in the 1990s, 2000s, and uh, for example, China joining WTO, the World Trade Organization, etc. Most people have started to see the how countries uh, depend uh, on on each other. Let's say um, financial links, uh, trade links, etc., and also how the information circulates. All of these things have made people aware that uh, we live in a, let's say, one economic system, global economic system. And at the national level, you could have different way, ways of adapting to this, uh, let's say, global framework. But you could not understand uh, global, what is happening domestically if you don't have an, an idea about who, which is not straightforward. Yeah. 
I would I would just add to that. It just occurred to me that also uh, for the last 30 years, 40 years in particular, the scope for sort of autonomous or national specific institutional development has reduced quite significantly. We more or less share the same institutional structures when it comes to the macroeconomy and, and that increasingly replicate, replicate U.S.-based institutional structures. So we, we cannot understand the, even our own institutions, we cannot understand them without understanding the patterns through which and, and the, the way they, they sort of travel across borders and they are influenced by what is happening uh, abroad. A note to our loyal listeners, if you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Yeah. Well, it's because the U.S. is the main is the main hegemony preserving global capitalism, right? It's kind of like how Taekwondo had different kind of backers, right? It's like, I mean, I don't want to call Japan a backer, but that was like the main source. But when the Japanese Empire like fell, the U.S. became the main the main kind of like backer of or like a really important foundation of of expanding Taekwondo, whereas Japan became more of a cultural legacy. You know, I, I mean, it's kind of some right. Like America wasn't always the main expander of capitalism. You know, before it was Britain. You know, before that, it was it was the Netherlands, funny enough. But you got to remember when that was happening, it was under a gold standard. The world was all using a third party like that nobody really had control. The gold was like the NBA commissioner. You didn't have the owner running the NBA, right? So you all were like, well, we all agree that we all have to compare our currency to gold. And then that's how we'll figure this out, right? Yeah. And then it's no longer gold, right? It's now US dollar is the global reserve currency, no longer gold. I would also say that changed the game. No, it's it's enforced very differently now, yes. Because another country could have all the gold. It doesn't matter. They're not going to be the richest country because gold is not the standard. So the U.S. can always outprint money than them. But secondly, the U.S. does also have the most amount of gold in the world as well. That's sure, right. It's only like one fort, isn't it? Yeah, because they also were the major bank for the world. Like France, the U.K., they all kept their gold here. And then one day the U.S. said, we're not going to give it back. Exorbitant privilege is what France called it. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, it's uh, It was after World War II, wasn't it? Yes, it was after World War II. Funny enough, also, when the U.S. was declaring this new type of global capitalist system, before the end of the war, it was the Bretton Woods Convention, which in financial history, they considered that one of the most important moments in the world. But like other people don't even know about it. Like For most people, they don't know about it. They don't care about it. They don't think it's that important. But really, it really was one of the most important things. And before the World War even ended, they still invited Japan to be a part of it. So it still shows like how we're our enemy, but then like financial dealings, like this is a separate thing. So it's like the cartoon of the wolf and the sheep, the Warner Brothers cartoons of the wolf and the sheep, like fighting each other. But then you hear the bell go off and it's lunch break and then they're off of work and then they're just talking to each other, hanging out in the lunchroom. Yeah. And then they go back to like fighting each other. Well, uh, better luck next time, Ralph. Oh, sure. You can't win them all, you know. Thanks. Nice day, huh, Sam? Well, time's a-wasting, Sam. Yep. Another day, another dollar. I, uh, punched you in, Sam. Well, uh, gee, uh, 
Thanks a lot, Ralph. That's very much how it is. It's like, let's just strictly talk business. But on this other thing, yeah, we got to do this shit. We got to like kill some people, whatever. But what's universal, what we all have to still agree on is capitalism, which the Soviet Union didn't go to Bretton Woods because they said it would be Wall Street controlling the world. And they were right. Yeah, well, I mean, that was like one of the things about sort of opening up relations with China, right? It's like, oh, you know, they're a communist country and we hate them. But it's like, well, we think, but we can still do business with them. You know, we can make, we can make money off of this. And when it, when it stopped being that way, right? When they start, when they started delinking, that's when, that's when we started entering this new Cold War period. You know, when that actually happened is they did this, a lot of fear mongering that China was buying up all of our debt. I remember that. Yeah. And so there was the xenophobia starting, but actually that's not where the real Cold War ended because that's called petrodollar recycling. Like you're supposed to in trade use that money instead of accumulating it in your own country to make your country rich, you're supposed to use that money to buy US debt. So it still comes back to the US. So that's why they call it recycling. 2013 is when they stopped doing that. So actually, even though they were vilified, that's just on the media, on the financial side. This is what the US wanted. This is what the Federal Reserve wanted. This is what the Treasury wanted. The State Department wanted. Um, this is why Clinton did the deal. But when they stopped buying our debt because they realized what was happening, that's when the real Cold War started. That's when they were really like, okay. So even though the vilifying was like, they own all our debt, it's when they stopped buying our debt. And they haven't been buying our debt. This is when the Cold War heated up with China. This connects back to what I was saying about US global monetary system and this control. It's like, it's supposed to all funnel back. And China didn't want to do that anymore. They wanted to decouple by not buying US debt anymore. So we think buying U.S. debt is bad. That's what the layman thinks. That's what regular Joe Schmo thinks. But it's actually what the U.S. wants. And that's not what China wants to do anymore. No, I agree. Is that, like, you, can, you can't have a, an analysis of global capitalism and imperialism. How it connects back to class analysis, right, is like, so I'm zooming out to the global scale to explain things because we're talking about these like you know, multiple countries and how like the whole thing works. But if you zoom in, you have something like IMF or what's happening in the U.S. right now with inflation, which is just like the cost of goods have gone up. But there's a lot of ways to measure inflation, which is the rise of the prices of assets is one way to measure inflation. And the other way to measure it is the rise of prices of goods. And they do try to kind of like average it all out, but it's weighted to try to like come up with the inflation number. But if assets go up for the regular person or working class and below, assets going up doesn't affect you, right? It makes like rich people happy because all their assets go up and a house is more expensive. And then a poor person's like, but I wasn't going to be able to buy a house anyway. But the cost of their goods goes up. So they feel that type of inflation even more. So for the rich, they actually like inflation because all their big stuff gets more expensive. So it's like bi-directional, right? For class analysis, to really understand it, then you got to know what causes it. But then for that macro financial monetary hegemony for that to make sense you have to look at what that does on what they call the streets it's like a financial term right i guess there's like a leftist political lens of like eyes on the street i guess it's the same kind of term just used differently the streets means like what it does for the regular person right so when inflation these monetary policies affect the street it devastates the working class and below so for me like i don't know how to separate it this is just like how i think about the whole thing well that's how you're supposed to think about it right I don't know, at least for me, it's like America is the main way capitalism reproduces itself globally, right? I mean, again, the fact is Korea has one of the most militant labor movements in the industrial world. Why was Korea allowed to industrialize? I mean, you know, these, these are directly tied to the way, you know, US imperialism worked, right? That they needed like an alternative to communist states and build up its military. 
the left kept getting repressed, right? But it kept coming back to life. And the reason why it kept coming back to life was because of the labor unions. Yeah. All the Korean gangster movies, like all the great ones, right? It's always like these gangsters hired by right-wing corporations try to put down the labor activists and they're always like fighting with sticks, right? Yeah. It's like it's always there in our media, like our labor unions and also tennis union. My dad was like a head of a tennis union in Korea. Oh. Like back then that meant- That's scary. Maybe the same thing it means today, but it was like very violent back then too. Oh, yeah. I know. Landlords are fucking like they're always been psychotic, but especially back in those days, right? You know, they just like early 70s. It was in the 70s. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's yeah, that's that's actually that's very ballsy. And then he was like, I'm never doing that again. So whatever he saw, he didn't want to do that again. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Right. It's like, like, you know, people disappeared. I think my dad organizing a tennis union started a cascade of events, which led to us abruptly moving to the U.S. But let's continue. So Taekwondo is declining times restoration. It's actually, just briefly, there's a photo I really enjoy. It's all the like founders. I'm not sure of all of them, but it's a lot of the founders of Taekwondo or the leaders in major gyms just like just partying and hanging out. (laughs) (laughs) However, acceptance into the exclusive club of the Olympics would prove to be Taekwondo's peak. The 1987 revolution led to the demotion of the military clique and in turn the rise of Chebols, the country's oligarchs. Taekwondo quickly proved to be ill-fit for the new era. South Korea needed a new mascot, one that better suited the nation's transition from a scrappy mercenary to a commercial powerhouse. That mascot would be found almost a decade later when H.O.T. popped into the scene, kickstarting the K-pop phenomenon. Macho men breaking boards were replaced with flower boy idols whose androgynous appearances ironically resembled the mystical Hanang warriors more than Taekwondo's most grizzled veterans. What's interesting about K-pop is that Though it is a hyper-capitalist system, it seems to inspire many fans, many left-wing and progressive ideals. We saw this at the U.S. during Trump, but you also saw this in movements in Thailand, for instance. And I've seen other examples of that through the world. And I will add that before H.O.T. was an artist named Sateji who used some of his political connections to bypass censors, that national security law that we talked about, to write a song about the reunification of Korea. But as soon as that album dropped, the Korean right, along with Korean churches, vilified the album as being satanic and teaching boys to be too feminine. This was the album where Sateji performed in a kilt, which I believe he specifically picked because it looked like a skirt, going back to skirt measuring. So there was a lot of politics involved with that third album for Sateji. The band was called Sateji and Boys. The music video for that was actually shot in one of the headquarters of one of the big labor movements in Korea. Yeah, well, Sateji thing was a little bit unique because he was he was like the beginning, like even like he was proto beginning, really. Yeah, right. Because he still, I think he still wrote his songs, and I mean, so this is this is something I've had a couple conversations with friends about because I think, especially like when I was talking to friends in Iowa about this, they were very shocked. K-pop has this very progressive image abroad because like. It's seen as very gender bending, right? It's, you see very feminine men in makeup. But what looks progressive abroad is progressive domestically. Yeah. And it's it's very hard to explain this because it's very confusing for people. But like K pop, even though K pop is like really popular with LGBT community abroad for really cool reasons, in Korea, it's like a major way to like reinforce like very strict gender binaries. If I know that doesn't look like it sounds like it makes any sense, but. Like if, like if you look, I mean, kind of a good example is if you look at like um, Korean um, the K-pop girl bands, right? It like it's all about appealing to incels. If we have to be honest, it's you know like there's maybe exception with Mama Moo, but 
you think of like twice you think of like red velvet it's all about like these very pretty almost like baby like girls you know like pretty you know like they're not really selling their song their songs or their music they're selling this parasocial relationship you know it's why they have this like it reinforces very extreme like beauty standards yeah it you know it's it's like um if there's a handful of progressive individuals like yes bts there's a couple of them who are very progressive the hyper feminine female k-pop groups that makes sense that fits in with like this right wing gender binary but how do we analyze the boy bands well i think it's we have to like look at it is that like the ruling class in Korea isn't always aligned, right? The, like K-pop specifically came from the demotion of the military clique. That that's the hyper masculine macho kind of people you think about to the rise of the chables, which are more cosmopolitan, which were you know much which cared more about the bottom line than they were about the culture wars. You know, if we had to be honest, like that's even like globally. This is why I don't. Okay, I mean, I'm gonna say I don't think think K-pop is is progress is is progressive or not. It's that like globally, like its main tool has always been to act as well. I mean, it's ambassadors to how Korea wants to project itself globally, right? But what that specifically means is they want to see themselves as essentially global investors, as entrepreneurs. That's where like that's like the image K-pop gives off. It's very very capitalist. I mean, like, can I give you a reference? Like, it's very popular in Southeast Asia, right? Like, there's even like K-pop bands tailored to Southeast Asia, which happen to be like the main region South Korea invests new industries and and exports and you know it's like i mean like even like i mean i guess one way it is culturally kind of bougie right like they're very they wear very expensive clothing you know it's it's all about projecting this image of like wealth that's unattainable for most people um when moon jae made his i want to say his korean war speech or his independence day speech can't remember which one what's very interesting is that so when most people make these speeches, it's always very ideological, right? It's about the values our country was founded on, blah, blah, blah. In South Korea, he, like Moon Jae-in didn't do that. All he talked about was a laundry list of achievements about how big our economy grow, how he normalized relationships with Japan, which was supposed to be a bad thing, but I guess it's a good thing now. you know. And one of those was BTS was <laughs> in, what was it, the Rolling Stones or the that fucking global billboard chart, right? Like... You know, because, oh, look, the Americans recognize us. Look, they like your music. I mean, like, it, it, it does feed into U.S. imperialism just in, like, a different way. It's, you know, it feeds into, I guess, the kind of, like, the way you, you see it in, like, Eastern Europe, this image of, like, enlightened liberals. Yeah. It's, and also, like, another part is the reason I, like, referencing George Spears to, to the to the Hwadang is that, like, Korea is a little weird in a sense in that there's two kinds of gender bending. There's the, the progressive, like, leftist kind. You know, you like, you do have your, like, brick drawers. You're like, fuck you to the police. We have our bars. You're not going to take us down. Fuck these pastors. But there's also like a part of him that like, there was also like a reactionary side to it as well that I, I don't know enough to explain, but it, it wasn't seen as like, it wasn't inherently seen as subversive. Like it can be, but it can be co-opted in a way that isn't even really liberal. Just the same as like Taekwondo, there's two Taekwondos, what Taekwondo is in Korea and what Taekwondo is abroad. Yeah. Same thing with K-pop. Yeah. And like, like, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not trying to shit on K-pop. I mean, like, I, I, li- I listen to K-pop regularly. Like, it's a uh, kind of a guilty pleasure of mine. No, but I think it is one for one the same template. I think that's why I brought it up, right? This uh, cultural export. There is a certain way they wanted it to be received outside of the country, which is different from how it was received in the country, right? Like Taekwondo in the country, it means you're an athlete. It's a sport. 
Whereas outside of it, it's seen as this like Orientalist thing that a lot of like people want to participate in to go back to Korea and like, you know, immerse themselves in that Orientalist trope. K-pop, as far as the cultural export, I think it didn't end up being like the right wing thing that Taekwondo did. I don't think they wanted it to project like a lot of progressive ideals, maybe because of like the context of how it looks. Like, I don't think to Koreans that initially looked to them like LGBTQ affirming, but that's how the West received it, right? Because like in Korea, I don't know about today, but you know, when I visited back in like the early 2000s, very normal for Korean men to wear makeup and wear like hair ties and different hair accessories and for men to hold hands that didn't mean anything about their masculinity or about their sexual orientation. But if the West saw that, they might accept it as like this very progressive thing, right? So it reads differently. Yeah, well, I think it backfired to a section of the ruling class, the conservative faction, right? But like, I mean, we see this like, like, like all these like, I don't want to call them corporations that like sponsors K-pop groups, like white, what's it called, YG or whatever. But it's like a lot of them like know that like they have a huge base among like um, LGBT like audiences abroad. And they like very clearly like they know what they're doing with like 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 marketing to them. I mean, it happened accidentally. And then now they realize, oh, we got a money making thing here. Yeah, we can make money off of this. But at least I think disturbing things, right? Like it's very popular to like ship like K-pop stars, you know, um, um, you know, if it's, it's like a homosexual relationship, which is like um. I think that's fine if it's like a fictional character because there's not a lot of representation there. But these are like real people, though, who like may be gay, may not be gay. You know, I mean, they'll never admit it if if they do have like an openly if they have an LGBT member. Like, obviously, they'll hide it for obvious reasons. I noticed they don't admit either way; they just leave it ambiguous, right? It's a little isn't that kind of like you don't you like commodifying these people's like into like of course romantic projections and it it it, it just I don't even if it's for like LGBT rights it does still disturb me because it's still like you're you're telling them that there's something that they may not be at the same time you know I mean I, I don't know how it would feel if I was in a position it went from a far right project with Taekwondo into a liberal project yeah <laughs> both capitalist right yeah well I mean it's just I mean like Korea is like the epicenter of like co-opting like radical like ideas right <laughs> if you love the Southpaw project. Please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash Pod. Let's continue with your article. Even as this was taking place, Taekwondo's foundations were already being eroded by its very own leaders. The Olympics had no place for the blood and broken bones that characterized early championships. In order to enter the Olympics, Taekwondo had to be civilized. The World Taekwondo Federation introduced safety pads, a refined but still easily riggable point system. And most notoriously, no more punches to the head, turning Taekwondo into the whitewashed sport that many detractors now derogatively call foot fencing. Nevertheless, it would be a mistake to say that Korea has not preserved the original spirit of Taekwondo. It just wasn't the one in the South. In 1979, Choi Hong-hee shocked the world when he defected to North Korea. 
Just like in the South, Choi built up Taekwondo's prestige by integrating a martial art into the Korean People's Army, which every North Korean male is required to serve in for eight years. As previously mentioned, Choi's own son would later be arrested. They say West Germany for training North Korean commandos in the country. That was actually a typo. The real story is crazier, and that he was training commandos to assassinate a dictator Chun Doo-wan. And after Korea transitioned to a democracy, he gave himself up because he felt the Korean government was not going to kidnap and torture him anymore. And he, he gave himself up in Canada. I, ended, I mixed this up with the East Berlin event. event. But actually, you know, actually, that kind of reminds me, there's a very interesting article by Vladimir Tikhonov you might like. It actually kind of gets into like how that, like, it's very much tied into like early 20th century masculinity. And like specifically, like a lot of like middle class reformers in the like the late Joseon period got very attached to um, a lot of these like weird like European sports movements that came around. Like I think they were called health movements or something like that. And it was all about trying to oh. create like this Ubermensch, like this like ideal body. Yes. And like part of it was this mindset is that like you must sacrifice yourself for a higher cause, and it was usually like nation project. Oh, we did an episode about that. And we talked about how he even went to like India, Japan. I didn't know about Korea, but it was like founded by these uh, early proto Nazis were the ones who started that. Oh yeah, no, it was it was old. I remember like I was actually thinking about that when I was reading this. This feels very, very fashy. Like not in like a like a not even like I mean it's a derogatory sense, but even more of this is just like literally what you, like they they talked about an ideology like creating the Ubermensch, you know, like the, the peak man. It was like very physical strengths too. It was like so. It, was, it wasn't just like political strengths. It's like you had to like actually be super buff, which is funny because all these like fascist leaders were like not very athletic. Well, I mean, I'm saying they were like scrawny, but they were like hardly Arnold Schwarzeneggers. I think a lot of it started with this Danish gymnast guy named Niels Buk. Goddamn Denmark! <laughs> <laughs> and then it got spread throughout the world. There's an article that I'll reference at the end that talks about yoga which the history is also manufactured much like taekwondo at least uh, according to some historians but let's continue while it may seem surprising that a former south korean general will defect to the communist north many years prior Choi had nearly died in a japanese jail for attempting to defect the kim il-sung's partisans in manchuria that experience gave Choi a deep-seated hatred for the collaborators who rose to lead the south korean government including Park jung hee himself Choi's relationship with the junta had soured so badly that even before he defected, the government had banned Choi's federation from the country. So Choi is like very complicated from like anti-communist and KCIA and all this stuff. But then he also had this history of like being uh, pressed by Japan, never really liking some of the people he was around. And then he defected. And just like kind of what you were talking about with Park Jung-hee he is very complicated yeah, I mean, well, just, I mean, that's the history of Taekwondo. Like, all these founders were originally anti-imperialist. Like, Nam Tae-hee, this is why they all learned Taekwondo. Nam Tae-hee learned Taekwondo to fight against Japanese bullies. Choi Hong-hee, like, I mean, it was against the wrestlers, a story, but, like, he also experienced, I mean, he, again, he was, he nearly died in a Japanese prison, you know, because he tried to join the communists. It's so, like, Cobra Kai, the TV show, right? Where all these, like, kids who are bullied become the bullies. That's, I mean, that's quite literally why I love that show so much. It really just, like, tapped into, like, everything I learned about Taekwondo. It's like, it's there. It's finally someone is saying it. And just like them, they were originally learning karate. That's true. It is karate, yeah. <laughs> I haven't thought about that. It, it's the original sport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, let's continue. So today in North Korea, you can still see army commandos practicing the original form of Taekwondo. You might even see it in practice the final form Choi Hong-hee ever designed, Juche. 
The history of Taekwondo brings up a greater question of what masculinity means to the left. Gillis's book is regularly filled with stories of high-ranking officers dancing drunk and KCIA agents punching politicians. Choi Hong-hee even once joked that to do politics in Taekwondo, one had to be good at drinking, gambling, fighting, and have at least one mistress. It should come as no surprise, then, that Taekwondo's founders named their martial art inside of a geisha house. Martial arts always had a strong allure among alienated young men by offering a means to reclaim their lost agency and self-respect. Taekwondo and the peninsula's broader militarization promised to overcome what many nationalists at the time called the Rape of Korea. But what happens when that promise was achieved by reproducing the same relationship of colonial terror and humiliation? This desire to overcome Korea's perceived inferiority complex caused Choi to develop a lifelong obsession to prove that his martial art was superior to its Japanese brother. During a show in Egypt, the soldier had privately shown Choi that he could smash a small oblong stone in half with a karate chop. Choi found a display so threatening that he ordered someone find a stone 10 times as large and had one of his ace team members smash the rock to pieces. However, it's vital that we remember that Taekwondo didn't start in the back rooms of the KCA or war crimes committed in Vietnam, but among the immigrant communities in the center of the greater East Coast prosperity sphere. This legacy still survives to this day in the very organization that embodies all things reactionary to martial art, the World Taekwondo Federation. The WTF takes a lot of pride in sending instructors to migrant enclaves in countries in the periphery, which has caused martial art to develop a reputation as a leveler for poor nations in the Olympics. In 2008, celebrations erupted all across Afghanistan when Rahula Nikpai clinched his country's first Olympic medal after he defeated two-time champion Juan Antonio Ramos. Rahula had first applied for the Afghan national team at a refugee camp in Iran. Taekwondo is a story about a failed decolonization project. It is part of a greater history when a South Korean state tried to create a new Korean identity, one they felt the people could take pride in, but required leaving in place the oppressive forces that had stolen their agency in the first place. But more than anything else, Taekwondo is a story of survival. The end. Yep. Right-wing politics and martial arts still seems very attractive to alienated young men. Do you see a lot of similarities then between right-wing taekwondo culture and today's right-wing mma culture oh yeah i mean it's very similar right it's um it's like i remember i was kind of thinking about something you like mentioned in another show where you said that you learn like brazilian jiu-jitsu because you think it's fun and you enjoy it but like a lot of people you know do it because they want to learn to fight and it, it it delves deep into this like sense of of like inferiority they feel yeah <laughs> You know, so it's it's the same route, but it's also like very different. Like, um, just like I, I remember, I was kind of thinking about the founder of One Championship, right? Which is like I think the largest MMA federation in Asia. So something kind of interesting. He, I think, said to the effect, "A mother would never let her child hang a poster of Conor McGregor." You know, and I think that's kind of an interesting point because, like, when we think of Taekwondo, let's be honest, we think we think the thing the image we have most of is kids, right? You know, it's, it's, you know, it's like elementary school kids playing around, you know, and it's like part of it is like, it was like meant to be a cultural identity, right? It was, it was meant to create like role models that Koreans can look up to, whether they're right or wrong, you know, but I don't know if you can really say that about MMA is because MMA is just so like, um, like, a, it's, it's just like American version of capitalism, right? It's so trashy. <laughs> it's so like, it's so like overtly spits on any like communitarian values, right? It's just individualist. Yeah. It's individualist. It's, I mean, it's, it's, MMA is like taking a concept of the Uber to the extreme where you have like an army of like trainers and men and, and workers like 
in like mobilizing to create the ultimate like man's man, you know, and watch him beat the shit out of another man's man, right? <laughs> it's it's very id like. Yeah, I think for Taekwondo in the diaspora, it's meant for Korean parents to send their Korean kids to learn Korean culture for cultural inheritance and cultural transference and learn Korean too, right? So there's a lot of things that is at least now about Taekwondo that is geared for kids and it's meant to be wholesome and to kind of teach Korean culture along with self-defense. Whereas MMA has a culture, but it's not about like transferring or teaching any type of like historic culture. It's more about purifying the culture of masculinity and individualism. Well, even the old style of Taekwondo was, I mean, I don't like, I like to sometimes uplift it over, like, I think the vulgarness of MMA in the sense that, like, well, to me, I like, when I think of MMA versus old style Taekwondo, I like to think of, like, Johnny's Cobra Kai, yeah, increases Cobra Kai, like, for, like, Johnny, Cobra Kai was, like, this community, right, he was, like, this, like, kind of, like, kid who came from, like, a broken family, he, like, he found, like, a fodder figure increase, he found friends, Right, it was like a community. Right, Eagle Fang versus Cobra Kai. Now, <laughs> it's, it's a very Johnny thing to name something, but you know, right? It's a, like everyone's wearing the same uniform, right? You have this kind of very strong sense of brotherhood and family, and that's kind of how old. That's kind of how Taekwondo was originally. Like Choi Hong Yi saw his students as his children, his sons, which is why he treated them as shittily as he did his own son. But he did like genuinely care about them. Like he was very hurt when they like betrayed him or they broke off relationships with him. Like it was, it was to him the same thing as a son. Like I'm getting emancipated. The early Taekwondo had nothing to do with money, right? Yeah. As far as any martial art goes, none of them make the same amount of money you can in a tournament or in a single fight that you can in MMA. Yeah. Oh, you know, it's incredible. It's like, I mean, like, as the original Taekwondo founders, as big as they're famous or Kwan's got, you know, they were, you know, they're basically small business owners compared to like um, um, UFC people. Yeah. I mean, it's, multi-billion dollar company so yeah no i don't think the kcia could have ever funded it to be like worth 10 billion dollars you know (laughs) no i mean as much money as the kcia had you know they didn't have donald trump money i guess yeah who actually is one of the people who helped kickstart and launch the ufc oh yeah that's why um dana white appeared in his um the rnc convention in 2016 was it but with your article and this explanation of taekwondo it seems like a blueprint for understanding how martial arts can be weaponized as a right-wing political tool oh yeah it's all the same blueprint at the end of the day but i have the view that that gillis has at the end where he's just like we we need to acknowledge these problems and we need to critically confront what they mean because you can't separate them from taekwondo but also like we we can't it's like we like it's not a, we can't just look at it as like an evil thing it, it tapped into something real because like um you know like taekwondo for all it's fr- all it's fault is a story of poor kids from a colonial backwater becoming some of the most like feared and inspired men in the world. You know, like there's like, you know, it's like, there's a reason why you don't see the original style in the South, but you see it in the North. And it's just like, how do we, how do we confront that legacy? I think it's, is really the biggest question. And just one that I honestly can't answer. Mm. I think related to this episode and our talk, people should check out episode 65, where in thinking about not only Taekwondo, but actually also of MMA in particular, it's part of a long history of right-wing masculinity that goes back to the start of the Nazi party, which we mentioned earlier 
with this like physical Ubermensch movement, which not only had to do with physical culture, but of fighting. There was a lot of like fighting clubs back then too. And there was also actually leftist fighting clubs back then too. So that's in episode 65. I'll put that in the show notes. There's also a related story, which we touched upon earlier about the story of yoga and how yoga was manufactured as a colonial tool. I'll put a link to that article as well. It also has similar origins to MMA in this physical culture, European men's movement. And then I'll also add a link to that Cobra Kai article that Jay mentioned earlier. Cobra Kai in a Twilight of the American Empire and the Allure of Paramilitary Violence by Albert Wu and Michelle Kuo. The other article that Jay mentioned, I'll put a link to that as well. And Jay will give you the name. Masculinizing the Nation, Gender, Ideologies, and Traditional Korea in, in the 1890s to 1900s um, by Vladimir Tikhanov. Maybe the only way to fight this right-wing masculinity culture in martial arts is with the modern Huarang of BTS and other <laughs> K-pop idols. Perhaps. <laughs> we fight MMA, toxic masculinity culture with androgynous Huarang K-pop culture. It would be an amazing fight to see. I think the uh, BTS army actually is much more powerful than online MMA Twitter. So, just a, It's just a UFC fight versus um, West Side Story. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Where can people find you and Red Star over Asia? Um, you can find Red Star over Asia in uh, most uh, podcasting apps you know, and our Twitter handle. Um, at Red Star Over Asia. Um, you can find me at thatkid1871 on Twitter. So I'll put a link to all that in the show notes. Thank you for your time, Jay. Thank you. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends.